John chapter 10, hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We are thankful for how it reveals Jesus Christ in all of his radiant glory. And here we see him as the good shepherd again. I pray that those who have gone astray from you this morning would return to the Good Shepherd as they hear His keeping power proclaimed. And I pray that you would help them to see that all of their assurance is bound up with Him alone. I pray for those in here who have yet to know you that you would help them see the power of Jesus Christ. And may you use His infallible mission and your sovereign power to save them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin today with uh, what's becoming a very familiar scene for us in the Gospel of John. It's another scene where there is division among the people over Jesus' words. Jesus speaks, he, he teaches something about himself, reveals who he is, and then the people divide in their opinions about him. In this case, Jesus has just finished revealing that he is the good shepherd in Israel. God had promised to send a special kind of savior for his people, and this savior would come as a shepherd. This shepherd would rescue them from their enemies. He would deal with their sins. He would gather them from all over the nations. And then he would rule over them. And Jesus essentially tells the Jews that he is that promised shepherd for Israel. He had come to rescue them from their enemies, like these Pharisees. 
He had come to deal with their sins by laying his life down for them. He would rule over God's people from all nations when he raised himself up from the dead. And that would be following what he had done to gather them to God in the first place by dealing with their sins and laying his life down for them. He would rule over them in the end and give them eternal life. And yet these words that Jesus has spoken to them, these words cause division among the Jews. Many of them say he's demon-possessed and insane, as if to say, never has any man had the power to raise himself from the dead. This guy is nuts. While some of the other Jews can't see how a demon could ever open the eyes of a blind man. That doesn't mean that these others have ultimately sided with Jesus. They certainly uh, object to the demon possession, but they never say who he is either. They never confess Jesus for who he is. All John is showing us is that the mass confusion among the Jews at large over Jesus remains. It continues. The confusion even goes on for several more weeks until we get to the Feast of Dedication and it's now winter time and the Jews still want answers. Right? Verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, which we shouldn't take take to mean... We really want to believe in you if you would just tell us, plainly. No, based on the context, they want their questions answered plainly so they have unquestionable evidence to arrest him for pretending to be their Christ. They're not just innocently curious. They're looking for sufficient reason to kill him. But despite their evil intent, the question becomes yet another opportunity for Jesus to reveal even more about himself for the sake of his sheep in Israel. Even if the majority of Israel remain blind and confused and hardened to his teaching, Jesus keeps speaking so that his sheep hear his voice and see his glorious goodness and follow him. And as Jesus answers, we find several assurances he speaks for his sheep. So if you're a follower of Jesus... Listen to these assurances. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope these assurances compel you to become a follower of Jesus. To begin with, Jesus' words and works reveal that he is truly the Christ. Christ is uh, another name for God's anointed one, his Savior for Israel and the world. So the first assurance spoken for a sheep is Jesus' words and works reveal he's truly the Christ. The question of whether he's the Christ shouldn't be that all that difficult for these Jews to discern. Considering that God has revealed Jesus to be the Christ both through what he has continued saying to them and through what he's been doing right before their eyes in his Father's name. That's what Jesus says in verse 25. I told you. So that would be his words, his teaching. I told you, and you do not believe. He's told them. 
He's told them through the titles that he's given to himself, like the Son of God and the Son of Man, uh, or the Bread of Life, or the Light of the World, even the Great I Am. He's told them in his constant references to the Old Testament, like when he says, Moses himself wrote about me. Or when he shows them how themes in the Old Testament, like the Sabbath and circumcision and manna from heaven and life-giving water and Passover and Abraham's offspring all come to their culmination in his person and work. He's also told them in how he's explained himself as the one sent from God over and over and over again. So yes, I told you and you do not believe. And then there's also his works. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, he says. His works, his miracles, like healing the man who was an invalid for 38 years or or feeding the the 5,000 with a few loaves and a couple of fish or giving sight to a man who was born blind. Each of these he performed in his Father's name So that the miracles themselves would become testimonies that God had really sent him. That God was really with him. Both his words and his works should be sufficient evidence for people to know that he is the Christ. If you're here today and are unsure about who Jesus is, or maybe you know somebody who's confused about who Jesus is, I would encourage you to open up the Gospels and read them. Pick a gospel like Mark or John and read it straight through. Or maybe even read it with another Christian in this room. Give these eyewitness accounts of Jesus a fair hearing. The gospel writers are certainly aiming to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ and that he came to die for the sins of his people. But not because of something they've fabricated but because of something marvelous they've witnessed in the person of Jesus himself, in both his words and his works. John says for himself at the beginning of of this gospel that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He wants you to see the same about Jesus. Jesus' words... And his works make up the sufficient testimony for people to know he is truly the Christ. That's even truer for these Jews. It's truer for these Jews who have possessed God's word for centuries. Who have memorized scripture upon scripture that anticipated every single thing Jesus says and does in his earthly ministry. The good shepherd being just one among the many other Old Testament metaphors. So Jesus' identity should be even plainer for the Jews. Everything promised in their ancient scriptures was unfolding before their eyes in Jesus' words and works. But at large, they remain an unbelieving people. Confused about Jesus. He says, I told you and you do not believe. My works bear witness, but you do not believe. As John already told us, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews. And his own people did not receive him. 
What are we to make of that? I mean, I just told you to read the Gospels because of how compelling they are of who Jesus really is, and yet one of the things you read in the Gospels themselves is that Jesus' words and works apparently weren't very compelling to the Jews, to his own people. What are Jesus' followers to make of all this unbelief among the Jews, especially if he's apparently made things so plain? If something, you know, you ask, is something lacking in Jesus himself? Is something lacking in Jesus' testimony? What are we to make of this so-called good shepherd who supposedly calls his sheep in Israel and they follow him? And yet we see him saying things over and over again like, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? I told you, and you do not believe me. My works are bearing witness, but you do not believe me. What are we to make of the fact that God's promised shepherd for Israel has apparently arrived in the person of Jesus, and yet the bulk of his own Jewish people do not follow him? What should we make of the persistent stubbornness of the Jews despite the obvious testimony God has given in Jesus again and again and again through his works? Is God's mission through his son somehow compromised by Israel's unbelief? And if so, what kind of shepherd does that make him for us? If God's own covenant people aren't acknowledging their promised shepherd, who's to say that Jesus is in his right mind after all. Is he truly the Christ? Jesus settles these questions with what he tells his people, what he tells these people in verses 26 and 27. And this is where we see the next assurance Jesus gives for the sheep. The first assurance was that his words and works reveal he's truly the Christ. Here's the second. All his father's flock will believe in Jesus. Or to put it differently, his father's unshakable purpose in election stands behind the faith of Jesus' followers. His father's unshakable purpose in election stands behind the faith of Jesus' followers. The more the Jews reject God's shepherd, the more they prove that God never gave them to the shepherd to begin with. These Jews in particular who are rejecting Jesus. Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He doesn't say, You are not part of my flock because you don't believe. Even though, in another sense, that would be true. Everybody who's born again and believes the gospel belongs to Jesus' flock. That's just not the point he's making here in this text. The point he's making here is that belonging to Jesus' flock is the ultimate determining factor in whether you believe in the chief shepherd, Jesus. Our belief does not force God to give us two His Son, we believe because God has given us to His Son. We believe because God has made us part of His Son's flock. 
This becomes clear as Jesus keeps talking. In verse 27, he identifies, My sheep hear my voice. Then later in 29, he says, It is his Father who has given them to him. The matter is one of the Father's election of a people for his Son out of the world by his own free and sovereign grace. We see this in other places in Scripture, like Romans 9 through 11, where Paul is addressing the same question of Israel's unbelief. And Ephesians 1, verses 3 to, 3 to 14. It's also very much like the point Jesus made before in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of my Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. He will even go on uh, to speak the same way in his high priestly prayer in, in chapter 17. If you want to go there with me. In his high priestly prayer, chapter 17, in verse 2, we see Jesus that Jesus gives eternal life. And he gives that eternal life to all the Father has given him. Out of the world, he's speaking. And then, if you move your eyes to verse 6. In verse 6, their keeping of God's word, they have kept your word. Their keeping of God's word is based on them belonging to the Father. Yours they were. And then on the fathers giving them to the son. And you gave them to me. Why are they keeping his word? They belong to the father and the father gave them to the son. And then later in that same prayer we see this extends beyond Jesus' initial followers, the twelve disciples, to everybody who would believe in him. Verse 24 Father, I desire that they also, that is, those who would believe later through the Apostles' testimony, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So the Father has given His Son a people. He has given His Son a people out of the world And his giving of those people to the Son is the decisive factor in their coming to Jesus. Yes, they still come. Yes, they still believe. Yes, they still choose to follow Jesus. But behind their coming and believing and choosing stands God giving them to the Son by his own gracious and sovereign choice. On one level, Jesus' statement serves as another stinging indictment of the hardness and the pride of the human heart. You see, the Jews think they have Jesus, they have Jesus cornered. That they can frustrate his plans. That their acceptance of him will determine whether or not his mission is successful. And then Jesus comes in and says, look, the reason you don't believe me is because you're not part of God's flock. 
In other words, nobody is morally able to come to me apart from my Father's gracious will. Apart from God's gracious will, you'll you'll forever remain in your unbelief. That's how much you're in control of this situation. That's what he's telling these Jews. John the Baptist's statement from chapter 3, verse 27, still rings true. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from above. Unless it is given him from heaven. Jesus speaks this word to indict the proud in Israel. To expose how depraved they really are without him. To expose that apart from divine grace, sin controls them. Unbelief controls them, ultimately. And it will be their constant problem unless God intervenes. On another level, Jesus' statement serves as an encouragement to the sheep. The unbelief among the Jews didn't mean, after all, that Jesus' mission was failing. It simply was exposing the nature of his mission even further. He came to save all his father's flock in particular, and not a single one of them would ultimately be left in their unbelief. He even reassures them all in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus knows his sheep in Israel. Some of them, this is why he's speaking, some of them will end up believing by the end of verse 42. You want to know what kind of shepherd I am? This is the kind of shepherd I am, Israel. He indicts the hardened, and those who respond with humility end up believing later on. But that doesn't keep him from holding back who he really is and why he came. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus knows his sheep in Israel, and when his sheep hear him say such things that indict Israel's hard-heartedness and expose God's sovereign grace, you know what they say to their shepherd? You got that right, Jesus. There's no reason in me why I should belong to this shepherd's flock save God's sovereign initiative in plucking me from the world and giving me to the Son, plucking me from that world I once loved. You're right, Jesus. For those of you who have believed, who've had your eyes opened as His elect to what Paul calls every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, wake up to God's sovereign grace. Every morning... Wake up to sovereign, saving grace who plucked you from the fire, who took you out of the world you once loved and gave you to the Son, owing to nothing that you did in yourself. Wake up to that every morning. Taste what it means every morning to be undeservingly saved. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who deservingly perish in their unbelief and those who are undeservingly saved through Jesus Christ. In other words, 
Nobody comes into this world neutral. Everybody's running to hell as fast as they can. And God snatches some for himself out of sheer love and grace and mercy. God plucked us from the fire. He lifted us up out of the pit because he simply chose to love us from his own free grace and sovereign kindness. Isaac Watts, we sing this hymn every once in a while, how sweet and awesome is this place. He put it like this, Why was I made to hear thy voice? Think of the shepherd calling his sheep. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice? Think of Israel here. When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Christians, we should be the most thankful, joyful people on earth. The most humble people in our interactions with the world. We must never think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Our salvation is owing to nothing of our own merit and nothing of our own loveliness. We once walked the course of this world and we're still vulnerable to the same sins as the rest of the world. The only reason we're running away from our sins to Jesus is solely owing to God's sovereign will. We are just as deserving of hell as the rest of the world, but because of God, we find ourselves among those undeservingly saved and loved. So put away the proud attitudes that you have all your doctrinal ducks in a row, and they don't. Put away, put to death in you every thought that God owes you His grace, or anything for that matter. Turn away from any attitude that says God is incapable of saving this or that kind of sinner. And you will know whether you believe this or not by the kinds of people you're willing to hang out with and actually share the gospel with. I experienced that just driving down Las Vegas Trail and coming up on a couple of apartment complexes this week. Seeing the same guys I see Every week nearly, waiting for the girls on Friday night with their cases of beer in their hands. Seeing the depravity and thinking, how could they ever turn? How did I ever turn? God! (laughs) Preach. God can choose to save anybody He wants, and He doesn't need our input. Election will not allow us to look down our noses at anyone, whether it be Westboro or the Taliban or the people next door. Free grace should kill our pride and increase our thanksgiving and humility. Our only boast is what God has done in Christ. I want to be clear, especially when approaching a subject like this one. 
I am saying that the Bible teaches that we believe in Christ because we are elect. I am also saying the Bible teaches that belief in Christ is necessary if you are to be saved. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. I'm just saying that the Father guarantees that all He's given to the Son, all the multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, as many as the stars of heaven, Hebrews 11 says, all He's given to the Son will believe in Christ. They will meet the condition of faith and be saved. And that happens through the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, awakening the heart to God. But hear this too. Knowing that you are elect is not a prerequisite for you to believe in Jesus Christ. We'll say that again. Knowing you are elect is not a prerequisite. It is not necessary for you to believe in Jesus Christ. All you need to know is your need of Jesus This shepherd in particular that came to rescue his sheep. All you need to know is that I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. Nowhere does the Bible require someone to know their elect before they can believe. And sadly, Christians in church history have made this mistake. That's like requiring Lazarus to know he's alive before Jesus calls him out of the tomb. You don't know jack squat. Until Jesus says, come out of the tomb and you're alive. You're dead. The same is true now. If you hear Jesus calling you this morning, don't say to yourself, but what if I'm not part of his flock? Don't say to yourself, what if I'm not elect? Don't waste your time with such arrogant questions that take your focus off Jesus, the shepherd, and place it on your own abilities to discern whether you're elect or whether you're good enough to be elect. Those kinds of questions are from hell and they are from a heart that still wants to be God and still wants to be in control. Election is not the object of faith. Jesus is the object of the elect's faith. So come to Jesus and find yourself elect. Listen to the Good Shepherd's voice this morning and find yourself to be part of his flock. Follow Jesus into God's rich pastures and discover what it means to be called a sheep. So look to Him and embrace Him and come to enjoy all His manifold blessings for His sheep. Jesus is the gateway into the sheepfold. Whoever comes to Me, He says, I will never cast out. So come to Him and find yourself loved and cared for by God's Almighty Son. If you believe, you are elect. So the sheep are now assured that Jesus' words and works reveal he's truly the Christ. And that even the unbelief in Israel doesn't call his mission or his message 
or his identity into question. All of Jesus' true flock will believe in him. The Father's election stands behind it and guarantees he's the good shepherd. He gives us one more word of assurance. The Son's mission to save and preserve his flock is an infallible one. The Son's mission to save and preserve his flock is an infallible one. When I say his mission is an infallible one, I mean that it will never fail. It will never fail us whatsoever in all he does. His work lacks nothing. His strength is never compromised. His devotion to save us never flinches or fades away. It's an infallible one. Another way we might put it is that the destiny of all his sheep is infallibly secure. The destiny of all his sheep is infallibly secure. Let me read it over you first and then make a few comments. Verses 28 to 30. I give them, that is, I give my sheep, the ones who hear my voice and the ones who follow him. So if if you follow Jesus this morning, and if you are following Jesus this morning, these words are true of you. I give them, my sheep, eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if you follow Jesus, these things are forever true of you. First of all, the Son secures your eternal life such that you will never perish. And what he means is no mere physical perishing, but dying as a guilty sinner under the wrath of God without escape. God's wrath is, just, uh, is his just and his settled response to our sin, to our rebellion. His just and settled response to our rebellion against his infinite worth. That's what God's wrath is. Our complaining, our uh, frittering away of our time while we're, at, while we're on the clock, our lustful thoughts, our lies, our poisonous tongues, our false self-centered motivations, our fist-shaking at God for this or that trial, all of our sin offends the infinitely holy God and merits eternal punishment. Our sins have mounted up an eternity of wrath that we deserve to suffer. But God, because of His kindness and because of His great love with which He loved us, sent His only Son into the world that He might suffer and die as a propitiation for us. Big word, right? Propitiation. Basically, that means he died as an infinitely worthy sacrifice to absorb God's wrath. He became a wrath-absorbing sponge. Our sins mounted up an eternal lake of wrath, and the dam of that lake 
broke on Jesus when he suffered on the cross. And he absorbed every last drop of that lake for his sheep so that none would ever befall them on judgment day. The reason he gives his sheep eternal life is that after the cross, eternal life is all that's left for them. He drank the cup of God's wrath, wiped it clean with his robe, and, his, and the Father and the Son enjoy filling that cup with the Holy Spirit and giving it to every one of his sheep who come to Jesus. Filling them with eternal life and the enjoyment of God himself. On top of that, he guarantees that no one will snatch the sheep from his hand. He holds and protects them. God reveals himself this way throughout the Old Testament. This hand imagery. For example, Deuteronomy 5. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a a mighty hand. God's hand is a figure of speech for his power and his ever-present help for his people. Or Joshua 4, for, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God also did in the red, to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. When you read of the Red Sea splitting and the Jordan River being backed up, think God's hand, his power, his might. Doing these things. Psalm 31, verses 3 to 5. You are my rock and my fortress. The psalmist is telling God this. You are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. And you take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge into your hand. Into your hand. That hand. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, my faithful God. So it's a mighty hand that splits seas and stops rivers and tosses armies into the water and one that overthrows nations. And yet simultaneously it's a hand that gently leads you and guides you and so gentle enough I can commit my spirit into his hand. You can care for me. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus is using the same imagery when he speaks about his hand. No one plucking them out of his hand. But he's not using this imagery because Yahweh's saving hand, you know, just kind of provides a good example for him to follow. No, Jesus uses this imagery from the Old Testament because his hand is Yahweh's hand. That becomes even clearer as his words continue. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. Now, that doesn't mean I and the Father are one person. That would be heresy. The Bible is repeatedly clear that there is a trinity of persons in one God. The Father and Son are not the same person, but distinct persons who share the divine essence. The Father and the Son are both God. That's more of what Jesus means here. But the way he states it is meant to point us to their unity of purpose and mission. In other words, Jesus' unity with his Father in saving and preserving the sheep reveals that he himself is God. Even though the Father and Son serve in differing roles in that mission. The Father's purpose to save the sheep and the Son's purpose to save the sheep are one. And so one that the only thing left to say is Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. One in divinity with his Father. And Jesus has made this abundantly clear a couple of other places in John already. If you want to go back and read later, John chapter 5, verses 19 to 29, and chapter 8. All of it. So here's what we're left with so far. Not only does Jesus' cross ensure that the sheep will never be exposed to God's wrath, but only exposed to His eternal life. But Jesus and the Father are also so united in mission that nothing can ever threaten the destiny of the sheep. Because of the unity between the Father and the Son, the sheep are eternally secure Even when the Son suffers the outpouring of the Father's wrath on the cross and dies, even when it would seem that sin and death had won for three days, Jesus was so united with His Father's will and purpose and mission that He prayed for the Father to keep them when He was taken out of the world by the cross. Even while he was on his way to be crushed under the, eternal, uh, under the weight of God's eternal wrath, he prayed like this in John 17. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them in his earthly ministry, I kept them. So while he's with them in his earthly ministry, he keeps them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And what he means is now I'm coming to you via the cross and resurrection. That's why Jesus speaks here of no one snatching his followers from his hand. And then also speaks of no one snatching his followers from his father's hands. He wants us to see that throughout the entirety of God's mission, from the election of the sheep in eternity past, to the saving of the sheep through the cross and resurrection, to the gathering of the sheep, and to the keeping of the sheep until the end, no person in the Godhead wavers in their devotion to the sheep. The Son does not preserve us apart from the Father or despite the Father. 
The Son preserves us because it is the will of the Father to love us like this. They are one. And we haven't even gotten to the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 and 16. That's still to come. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Which means greater than everything in the universe that he created. Nobody is stronger than him. Nobody is wiser than him. Nothing is ever outside of God's control, even when his own son dies on the cross. The point is clear. There's no danger too great for the shepherd to handle. His cross is sufficiently powerful to deliver us from the danger of all dangers. God's wrath itself. His hand is mighty to hold on to you because His hand is God's hand. His mission is one with the Father who loved and determined to save the sheep through His own Son. In Christ He chose us in Him. In Christ He chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him in His presence in love. And his Father is greater than all. So no one and nothing can ultimately stop Jesus from saving you if you belong to him, if you've given him your life. His hand is never a hand that leaves the sheep endangered, but a hand that is always capable of rescuing them and always serving their best interest infallibly. If you're wondering whether Jesus' hand has grown slack in rescuing you now, let me remind you that his hand did not grow slack when God nailed him to the cross for your sins, enduring the greatest battle he would ever face on your behalf, and he endured it all to the end. And he still bears the marks, the wounds in his resurrection body to remind you of how far he went how far his keeping love goes. And if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all on the cross, how will he not also with him, now risen from the dead, freely give us all things? It's like Paul and Jesus are on the same, know the same things. If God did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us now. His love hasn't stopped for you. His keeping power hasn't faded away from you. And it will be like that till the end. That means that despite the blue mornings that will come, you know those mornings which you cannot see God clearly? I mean, you pick up your word. I'm doing the right things. I'm picking up my word. I'm reading this book. It is just black ink on white paper today. Those mornings in which you cannot see God clearly... When your soul is wearied by the world's darkness... When you're so tired you can't even think straight... And when the various stresses of life seem relentless and sucking the life out of you, the shepherd never lets you go. 
He never lets you go. It means that despite what sufferings we might encounter, depression, cancer, a lost loved one, persecution, the loss of your, of your mind, like with dementia, my granny is experiencing right now, your destiny is bound up with the shepherd and his keeping strength when you follow Jesus. If you belong to him, he will never let you go. It doesn't matter if your hands eventually grow too weak to even pick up your Bible and read. There will never be a single tremor in the hand of Jesus Christ our Lord in holding you fast to himself. It doesn't matter if another car takes you out on the way home. If you belong to Jesus by faith, you will know eternal life with God. Jesus' infallible mission to save and preserve his sheep It also means this. If He is the ultimate guarantee and confidence of our salvation, He alone possesses such power to keep us. And if that is the case, that He alone possesses such power to keep us, then how could we ever place any confidence in our flesh? How could we ever place any confidence in preserving our own public image? How could we ever place any confidence in our own perceived goodness or in our own good works or in our own strength to overcome this or that situation or temptation? If we belong to Jesus' sheep, then our lives shouldn't be filled with worry and fear of losing anything since we've already gained everything in Him. Our lives shouldn't be filled with creating security in this world like crazy and frantically running around to pile it on because we already have the best of security in the mighty caring hand of the chief shepherd. And that's the same with your money. If the chief shepherd gave his life for you, I think he'll, I think he'll protect you and provide for you all that you need with your finances. Our lives shouldn't be filled with frantically trying to get everything back in order after we sin. As if to say our own efforts will then assure us a spot in heaven. Dad, come in, I've messed up again. And when we scramble around, call people on the phone, sorry, trying to hem everything in, answer every single question to the nth degree. All the while our trust is in ourself. To keep us and preserve us. We shouldn't be frantically trying to get everything back in order. Should we turn from sin and seek restoration and put wise measures of accountability in place to keep from returning to sin? Absolutely we must. But never should we get the idea that we must somehow re-earn God's keeping favor all over again when we sin. His keeping power has forever been won for us at the cross. The end. His keeping power has forever been won for us at the cross where Jesus died once for all. Our sins, past, present, and future. Our eternal security is bound bound up with Him alone and not with our own doings. So hide yourself in Him. Hide yourself in Him every day. He is your strength during times of weakness. 
You will be tempted and you will be tried and you will sometimes fail. But He is your strength and your victory and your propitiation and your all-keeping shepherd. Turn from the sin and keep finding life in Him. Keep following Him. He's given you several assurances already just in this passage alone. His words and His works have revealed He is truly the Christ. So read them for yourself again and again and see what He says of your soul and embrace them. Moreover, trust that His Father's election shows His message and His mission and His identity are true even in the face and opposition of this world. And give thanks for God's sovereign grace and humble yourself before the Lord and before others. And then trust that His mission to save and preserve His sheep is infallible. Nothing can ultimately prevail over God's elect because nothing can ultimately prevail over the mission of the chief shepherd. The Father, Son, and Spirit guarantee it. And if you believe on Christ this morning, that means your destiny is sealed. And Jesus will give you all that you need to persevere to the end when we see Him face to face. He is a good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for, your, for the keeping power of our shepherd, and I pray that you would help us to trust in him more and more. Like the song we have sometimes sung, Oh, for grace to trust him more and more. I ask that you would strengthen the downcast and encourage the weak and bring back the straying and save those here who have never known such security and such assurance in this life. Pray that you would increase our joy and our thanksgiving and our humility throughout the week and in our interactions with one another and with the world that many more might believe and know the comforting graces, the keeping graces of our shepherd. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.